Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for this time, for this morning. I thank you for each woman in this room and for their stories, Lord, for the ways that you have um, crafted them, that you are continuing to mold them and shape them and learn, um, teach them about yourself. Lord, please help us to learn, to continue um, our journey in learning more about you this morning, to do that in fellowship with other women here. Lord, I thank you for this um, beautiful, beautiful picture of your um, the idea that we are united with Christ, the reality, the truth that we are united with your son Jesus and that we can ab- abide in him. Lord, I ask that that truth would just sink more and more fully into our hearts this morning as we study this idea, as we begin by the power of your Holy Spirit to um, more fully grasp this reality in our own hearts and lives. Lord, I pray in particular for Rachel right now. I thank you for her. I thank you for the ways that you have gifted her, Lord, for the wisdom that you have given her. And I just ask that your Holy Spirit would speak through her, that you would prepare both her words and our hearts that um, both might be honoring and glorifying to you, Lord, that you would um, make fruitful all the preparation that she had done, has done so far, that you would speak clearly through her and that you would help us to receive. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. Psalm 94, 19 says, When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. So um, I'm... I've been praying for each of us that as we bring in our many cares today, that we would find a cheering consolation for our souls in God's Word. Uh, We're going to begin this morning by studying a beautiful passage from the Gospel of John. It's probably familiar to most of you, John 15. And then in our second talk this afternoon, we're going to talk about some practical applications of these truths and get into the question of how we grow spiritually. So I'd like to open our time this morning with a story from one of my current clients, and we're going to call her Jane. I saw her this week, and I asked her if I could share her story with you all, and she agreed and said it's encouraging to me to think that my story would bless these women. So she has um, our permission. I'm really thankful for her voice. Um, Jane is about my age. She has three kids. Uh, She homeschools them. She goes to church. She serves her family. Um, serves her community. She could be any one of you sitting at the table this morning. She's just a typical lovely Christian wife and mom. Um, You would never suspect the kind of pain that she's endured in her life. Jane was raised in a chaotic home with a mom who was addicted to drugs. Uh, She was molested from the age of five by a family member. When her parents split up a few years later, she lived with her mom and endured a rotation of boyfriends and apartments and schools. Um, Oftentimes, she would come home to no one. She would just be home alone. And there was sometimes no food in the house. Uh, She can remember no electricity at times. Just real neglect um, for those years. When she was 13, her mom became homeless and started living in her car, and she went to live with her father and stepmom, who treated her with suspicion and coldness and blame. At age 14, Jane began smoking cigarettes, weed, and using meth, and at 16, she had run away from home and was homeless herself. She had soon progressed to heroin, and at 20, she nearly died of an overdose. 
There are many other details from Jane's life that I haven't mentioned, but that gives you a picture of what her story is like. Jane told me that during her years of addiction, she would actually smoke joints rolled from the pages of the Bible. Uh, literally just tear the pages of Scripture out, fill them with illegal substances, roll them up, and light them up. Uh, she said that Bibles were pretty easy to come by and um, that the paper was the right thinness for rolling joints. Um, she also said that she and her friends would go to the dollar store and to like the Catholic section where the candles and the picture frames were and get the little pictures of Jesus and break the glass and um, use it to cut up the cocaine to smoke the, or to snort the cocaine. Um, it was sort of a, a joke to them in a way, she and her friends. It was a way to sort of mock um, the idea of God. <clears throat> and um, at this stage in Jane's life, she was so beyond loving God or submitting to him, she actually destroyed his image and his word as a kind of scornful rejection of everything to do with Christianity. But Jesus set his love upon her. When we were yet enemies, Christ loved us. He pursued Jane. He delighted to call her out of a life of brokenness and sin and misery and abuse and make her his own. He rescued her, and he radically transformed her heart. Jane uh, once said to me, you know, people with my background pretty much all end up dead or in jail. The only reason I'm alive today is because of Jesus. Would that we, ladies, could deeply know that these words are utterly true of our lives too, right? The only reason I'm alive today is because of Jesus. We may not have Jane's story. Jane's story is obvious, it's dramatic, her rescue. But we have the same story in the sense that we were dead in our sin and we have been made alive together with Christ, right? Uh, Romans 6 says that we have all died with Christ so that we might be raised with him. For the death he died to sin, he died once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. If anyone is in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. Um, it may not feel that way to you, but it's true. And so we have to let the words of Scripture inform our hearts and, and teach us what our story it is. But the gospel is so much more than what we have been saved from. It's also what we are saved for. The good news of the gospel does not simply mean that when we die, our sins are forgiven and we live forever with Christ in heaven. It, it, that's true and that's wonderful. But the good news of the gospel is that we get Jesus now, in our lives now. He is our husband. He is our maker. He is our friend, our brother, our shepherd, our king, the lover of our souls. And he wants us to get close to him, to abide with him. This is what we were made for. God himself is the greatest treasure of the gospel. That would be a good thing to write down. Just saying, 
That's kind of the refrain of this whole event, that God himself is the greatest treasure of the gospel. True life is found in knowing him. God invites us into the life of the Trinity. We are called to participate deeply in his love. He offers us fullness of joy, his abiding presence, and his steadfast love. He offers us himself. This is the gift that we need above all else. Our story cannot be told apart from the story that he reveals to us. And it is a story about communion, about fellowship, togetherness, love. From beginning to end, if you think Genesis to Revelation, what the Bible is all about is communing with God. The very um, last chapter of the book of Revelation says that our hope, our goal, our entire trajectory is to see the face of God, right? That's what we, that's where we're going, and we get a little bit of that now, um, and that's sort of what our faith is, face, faith is all about, to look on the face of God, to, to see his beauty, to dwell with him in unity. All right, so my question for you today as we begin is what are we seeking from God? Uh, what is your greatest fear? What is your greatest hope, your greatest need? What cares of your heart did you bring in with you today? Um, I'm guessing that as we've had that introduction, you're thinking, well, I need God. <laughs> but none of us are at that level of spiritual maturity, right? We all have idols. We all have things that we go to for comfort and for power and security. Um, so just be thoughtful for a moment. I've got a little journal area here in your, on the first page. And um, there's a question. If you could answer the following question with deep honesty, what would you say? Life only has meaning if, or life is only worth living if. And then there's some suggestions on the next page. Um, you know, productivity or health or wealth or um, family, career, etc. So you can sort of look through that, and I'm just going to give you a moment to sort of be reflective and um, even write things down. I'm not going to ask anyone to read their journal out loud. It's totally private, so take a second. Whatever um, is coming to mind for you, whatever you may have um, written down, I just want you to know there's no shame in this. You're not alone. Um, we all have places of fear and insecurity in our lives. Um, God knows this. He understands. He's very compassionate with his uh, little sheep who go astray so often. Um, I'll just share with you, and I'm honest with myself about this question, um, I tend to have idols in the area of approval seeking. Um, I'm only content and happy if the people around me that I care about the most are happy. Um, any Enneagram fans out there? You guys know the Enneagram? I'm a nine. So nines fear loss and separation. Um, We're really motivated to keep people at peace, peace within, peace without. And so when people get unhappy, I get 
real uncomfortable really quickly, and it gets me into trouble um, a lot. So, um, you know, peace, harmony, approval, these are, are good things, right? All of these things, you know, having lovely children and successful careers are they're very good things. Um, they're just not the good, right? They're not the ultimate good. Um, so God is a loving and good shepherd of our hearts, and he's a jealous God, and he is very faithful to not allow us to make anything more important than himself. Um, he wills to be at the very center of our lives, and um, anything that threatens to displace him from that place, he's very kind to discipline us and to cut those things out of our hearts. Um, it's painful. It doesn't, doesn't feel nice sometimes to go through that type of pruning. Um, but it's, it's good, and he's with us, and he is um, very gracious to heal us when, when we've been pruned back in that way. Um, so let's go ahead and move to our study of John 15. That's on the next page. And um, perhaps the little journal work that you've done so far, you can just keep that in your heart as we talk and um, just throughout the day, you know, consider inviting um, your soul to examine that and to bring that before the Lord as we hear his life-giving word. So let's read together John 15, 1 through 11. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is, it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, let's begin by defining the word abide. You probably noticed this word throughout the text and on our bookmarks and our, on our uh, flyers. Um, it's there no less than 10 times in 11 verses. That's a lot of repetition. Um, as well, it's kind of a strange word that we don't use that often. It means to remain stable or fixed in a place. Um, to continue in a place. The NIV translates the word as remain. Um, we can kind of hear the, the meaning in our word abode. 
Okay, an abode is a home, right? A place where you stay, where you hang out or reside. Um, so abide is the verb that we do in an abode. It's the, it's the, the act of staying or getting settled down, putting down roots. Um, so abide in Jesus. Abide in my love means live in Jesus. Live in his love. Stay there. Get fixed. Take up residence. Transfer your citizenship to the country of Christ. Abide in him means dwell in Jesus. Make your home in him. And he promises to make a home in us. Um, let's notice right away that abide in me is attached to the follow-up phrase, and I in you. Right? We don't take hold of Jesus so much as he takes hold of us. The invitation to put down roots in Christ is because he has promised to abide in us. He's not going anywhere so we can make ourselves at home. Uh, Now, I want to turn our attention to the first verse in which Jesus calls himself the true vine. I am the true vine. Why does he say that? Is there another vine? Yeah. There is, there is another vine, and it's Israel, okay? God's people. Israel is associated with vine imagery throughout the Old Testament. Um, This, by the way, was sort of new for me when I did this study, and I think a really um, helpful, rich understanding of this text, and I hope it's going to enlighten your heart. We're going to take a little time and walk through some Old Testament passages so that we can see that. Um. So Israel's the vine, God is the gardener or the vine dresser. God planted the seed of Israel, and sadly, she has been a pretty disappointing vine. She did not yield a very fruitful harvest, did she? Um, more, than, more often than not, her dry branches have just been fuel for the fire. All right, let's look at Ezekiel 19, 10 through 14. If you have a Bible, there's some, some of you brought Bibles, there's some on the table, you can use your phone. I think it's helpful to look at the actual text if you want. If you don't, that's fine too. But um, I am going to read it to you, you can just listen. Um, Ezekiel 19, starting in verse 10 through 14, um, was writing as a prophet during the Babylonian exile. And he says this of the nation Israel. Your mother was like a vine in a vineyard, planted by the water, fruitful and full of branches by reason of abundant water. Its strong stems became ruler's scepters. It towered aloft among thick boughs. It was seen in its height by the mass of its branches. But the vine was plucked up in fury, cast down to the ground. The east wind dried up its fruit. They were stripped off and withered. As for its strong stem, fire consumed it. Now it is planted in the wilderness in a dry and thirsty land. And fire has gone out from the stem of its shoots, has consumed its fruit, so that there remains in it no strong stem, no scepter for ruler. This is a lamentation and has become a lamentation. Powerful passage, right? Um, Hosea chapter 10, um, verse 1, the prophet Hosea is writing actually a couple year, hundred years before Ezekiel, just before the northern kingdom goes into exile. 
He says, Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more his the more altars he built. Those are altars of idolatry. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. So Israel is a luxuriant vine. That means an idolatrous vine. And the fruit that she's producing is the fruit of idolatry. And what is God going to do in this passage? He's going to destroy it, right? Which is, of course, what happens. Israel goes into exile. Um, Hosea chapter 14, which is the last chapter of the entire book, the prophet begins to replace that language of destruction with the hopeful language of healing and still using that vine imagery. He says, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. So this is a messianic passage, right? Predicting the blossoming of Israel once again when God will make her fruitful in sending the Messiah. Do you hear that language? Isn't that cool? Don't you guys love this? Yeah, it's such neat, such rich imagery throughout the Old Testament. Um, Working our way through the Hebrew scriptures, we come to Psalm 80, um, which is a prayer for restoration and salvation um, out of exile. Psalm 80, starting in verse 8, reading through verse 16, the psalmist says of Yahweh, you brought a vine out of Egypt. That's Israel, right? You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along its way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. So here we have another clear image of vine this vine imagery or metaphor, that Israel was initially a fruitful vine that God himself planted. He cleared the land. He put it in. It it did really well at first. But then she was unfaithful, right? She turned away, and God had to destroy it. Um, It's it's really a tragic picture. It's very heartbreaking. All right, one final Old Testament passage for context comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Isaiah was a prophet in the 8th century in between Ezekiel and Hosea. 
and um, he was also calling Isaiah to uh, Israel to repent. Isaiah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes a poem about a vineyard. You guessed it, a vineyard. He says, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns will grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain, no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. This passage could not be more clear Israel is the vine planted by Yahweh, but instead of the fruit of justice and righteousness, there is violence, bloodshed, idolatry, a yield of only wild grapes. So it will be trampled down, made a waste, not pruned, not watered. The briars and the thorns will grow up. This is God's judgment on Israel because she failed in her mission of being a light to the nations, of living in union and communion with him. All right, so can you hear the music of the Old Testament now as we approach John 15? Hear that refrain of the vineyard turned to dry branches and thorns, the fruit just gone to waste. Um, Jesus also took up this refrain in Mark chapter 12, um, shortly after the triumphal entry, before he went Uh, to the cross, he told a parable about a vineyard. Um, He said, a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug it for a wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed, and so with many others. Some they beat, and some they killed. So those are, any any guesses? Feel free to raise your hand. Who are the the people in this parable who are being killed and beaten? The prophets, exactly. Um, He still had one other, verse 6, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. 
who are the others that the, the vineyard owner is going to give the vineyard to? Any guesses? That's right. The Gentiles, the church, you and me. Have you not read the scripture, verse 10? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So uh, in this parable, Jesus takes up these categories from the Old Testament that we've seen, and he reinterprets them. He puts himself in the story. His meaning is obvious. He is the beloved son who will be killed because Israel is going to reject him. He identifies himself with God, and Israel is the wild and violent vineyard. All right, now that is a lot of context work that we've just done. Um, I think it's worth the time to, to see how these passages relate to Christ. Um, Jesus is saying, when he says, I am the true vine, he's saying that in all the ways that Israel failed, he is going to succeed, and we get to be part of it. So I am the true vine means I am the new Israel. Right? I'm the second Adam. This is a do-over for humanity. We're going to do this again, folks, and I'm going to get it right. Jesus is going to come in and do what Israel failed to do, to um, love God, to produce fruit, to turn away from idols, to live faithfully, to keep covenant, to be obedient. Um, Jesus remained in God's love. He was able to love his Father purely and perfectly. And he stayed planted in God's love. So the gardener did not have to uproot him. Um, although he, he did in his death and resurrection, right? For our sake. For our sake. So he, he took the judgment that we deserved um, and was vindicated in his resurrection. All right, I am the true vine. We are his branches. We have a vital, living, organic connection to the true vine. Our only job is to stay rooted in him. The gardener's job is to grow a garden. His goal is to produce as much fruit as possible. Our job is to stay connected to the vine. The gardener and the vine grow fruit. We are just simply branches. That's our, that's our whole job. We're not responsible to produce the fruit. Jesus even tells us that apart from the vine, we can't do anything. If we get cut off from the vine, we won't produce anything at all. We'll just wither up and die. So as branches, we have to be vigilant to stay in the vine. Um, most of the time, we worry ourselves with what kind of fruit we're producing, right? Healthy kids, good careers, lovely homes, nice bodies, lots of friends, people who like us, good Christians, these things are good. Like we said earlier, they're fine. They're great. But that's not our primary job description. What is in our job description? Abide. Abide. Abide in the vine. God is pleased to produce fruit in us in these areas and others as we maintain our vital connection to him, seeking his will, loving him first and best, following his lead. How quickly, ladies, do we stray down paths of idolatry, right? Um, and the gardener, he comes along with his pruning knife, and he says, any branch that does not bear fruit, he's going to cut it off, right? Throw it in the fire. 
All right, so, so far, we've learned um, what it means to abide. We've learned who the true vine is and what it means to be a branch. Um, now, what about the fruit? Let's look briefly at that. Uh, the text shows us clearly that it's love and it's obedience. The fruit that Jesus is talking about is love and obedience. Love and obedience go hand in hand um, throughout Scripture and especially in this section of John's Gospel. You can see it really clearly in John 14, 15, the previous chapter. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. In other words, as we stay close to Jesus, we start to resemble him. We start to take on his character, his um, righteousness. We, um, we reproduce his life in the world as we abide in him. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Think about, think about it this way. Jesus, as the true vine, the new Israel, right, second Adam, do-over for humanity, he is in the Father, and the Father is in him. There's this sort of arrow going up between Jesus and the Father. He is abiding perfectly, constantly, all the time. Remember Jesus' habits. He would withdraw in the early morning to be, to commune with his Father. He loved the Father. He often said, there's nothing that I've ever said that doesn't come from the Father. I don't speak on my own authority. I don't do anything that the Father doesn't tell me to do. He was entirely submissive and yielded to the Father. So he, he abided always, constantly with the Father in his love. And the fruit of that abiding of Jesus and the Father was a fruit of holiness, of righteousness, of justice, right? And now Jesus is teaching us in this passage that we are in Christ and he is in us. Just as Jesus is in the Father and the Father is in him, we get to do that too. We get to be part of Jesus. We get to abide with him in love, in this vital, organic, living connection. And it just is that way. It's, it's not um, something that we do. It's reality. It's, it's the truth of what it means to, to be a Christian, is that you get caught up into that abiding life. Does that make sense? Yeah? Yes? Okay. All right. I think I actually think that's probably a good place to, to wrap up. Um, and um, what I'd like us to do is to move into a little time of discussion. Um, I don't know how long we have on our schedule. What? Are we good? Okay. Okay.